Hey everyone, welcome back to Chronic Failure Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Bostock. Well, I need to say, April flew by. Seems like this year so far is going by pretty quickly, uh, which is good in some senses, but also, you know, time flies. It seems like there's a lot of stuff you want to get done, and you think you have a lot of time, and Then the time flies and you realize you didn't get as much done as you thought you would. Anyways, today's episode is our third current events episode and it's going to be covering current events throughout April. So the topics we're covering today is toxicity of drugs released into waterways determined by pH levels. The European Union CO2 border taxes that are being proposed. And the story of an indigenous woman being awarded the 2023 Goldman Environmental Prize. And of course, lastly, the extinct lion spotted for the first time in 20 years in Chad, and that's in Africa. Today's episode should be a pretty exciting one. Let's go ahead and get into the first topic. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, thank you for listening. More than 137 million Americans are living in places with unhealthy levels of air pollution. The number of weather-related disasters has increased five-fold in the past 50 years. Tonight, amid record-breaking heat and explosive wildfire bringing devastation to Northern California. The Red Sea corals are under threat of toxic wastewater being dumped into the sea from an oil processing plant. Which is the release of dangerous ancient microbes buried deep under the permanent frozen zone. So, toxicity of drugs released into waterways. So, recently there was a collaborative study undertaken by the universities of Tübingen, which is in Germany, and Athens, Greece. And they found that the toxicity of chemicals in bodies of water, such as lakes and rivers, can vary greatly depending on the level of acidity in those waters. Now, the aim of this study was charting chemicals that were found in commonly used medications, such as ibuprofen. Now, at the end of 2022, the European Commission aimed to set environmental standards in order to regulate drugs such as ibuprofen. And the collaborative study feeds into the development of these environmental studies. To quantify toxicity levels, scientists used data obtained from examining the chemical levels found in fish embryos. Now, like I said, the goal of the study was to develop a reliable prediction model of the varying toxicity levels of chemicals in said bodies of water. Now, we'll backpedal for a little bit of context. As the population ages and the use of medication increases proportionally, chemicals from the medications tend to find their way into our waterways. Now, this is because in order to optimize their effect, 
active ingredients and medications are designed to not break down easily in the human body. Now it's for this reason, part of the medication that isn't broke down is ultimately excreted and finds its way into the waterways. Now this particular study quotes four medications as examples of this, Diclofenac and ibuprofen, which are both painkillers, and Clofibric, a cholesterol-lowering drug, and Metoprolol, a beta-blocker. And these are all ionizable molecules, and they exist in neutral or electrically charged forms, which is very important. The bodies of water, for their part, have varying levels of acid-base ratios, and this acid-base ratio is measured as pH. The pH ultimately affects the levels of absorption into the cells of living organisms, and it can cause damage. So medications like ibuprofen are considered to be an emerging contaminant, and it's widely present in water and soil. So there's a high consumption rate of ibuprofen and a low environmental degradation rate. And this combination is very troubling. Now we have seen combinations like this before, high human and low environmental degradation. It's like in our episode of the Grassy Narrows coverage. Obviously in the study, they had to test against organisms or test organisms of the uptake of these molecules and in this particular study, they use the zebrafish. Zebrafish are tropical freshwater fish in the minnow family. And they're commonly used to study human diseases. As shockingly, we share about 70% of our DNA with them, which I, which I found very fascinating. In her blog post for Intramural, author Elizabeth Burke states, quote, Moreover, zebrafish have two eyes, a mouth, brain, spinal cord, intestine, pancreas, liver, bile ducts, kidney, esophagus, heart, ear, nose, muscles, blood, bone, cartilage, and teeth. Many of the genes and critical pathways that are required to grow these features are highly conserved between humans and zebrafish. Thus, any type of disease that causes changes in these particular body parts in humans could theoretically be modeled with zebrafish. Wow. Now, for the study... The zebrafish's developing eggs were exposed to varying degrees of chemicals in order to find out what is called the LD50 value. Now the LD50 value refers to the value at which 50% of the contaminated population, so 50% of the eggs, will perish. Scientists tested the chemicals in up to four different levels of pH. 
there were some chemicals that produced extremely variant results. Now, co-researchers Heinz Kohler states, quote, for some active pharmaceutical ingredients such as diclofenac, the beta blocker propranolol, and the antidepressant floxetine, the LD50 value in fish embryos varied more than a thousand-fold between pH level of 5 and a pH level of 9. Now, this is such a huge degree of variation for such a slight decrease in pH. According to the study's co-leads, the results of the study should have an impact on the European Union's standardization. And these standardizations would be registration and authorization of chemicals in the European Union, definition of environmental quality standards, and as a start, the study would set the EU water limit value for ibuprofen to be eight times lower than it was under a previous method. Now there is more to this study and I encourage you to research and I encourage you to take up some of this research on your own. Of course, I say this all the time with our topics. Due to the amount of information and the time constraints we have, there is always more information on these topics than I can present to you. Now, the study provides the framework to directly affect policy change in a tangible manner. It's a direct implementation of data on policy, and I think it'll be a win in the long run. Moving on to the next topic, it is also in the European Union, and it is about their CO2 border tax. So the European Union has committed to reduce its net greenhouse gas emissions by 55% by 2030, and this is compared to 1990 levels. So ultimately, the EU aims to be carbon neutral by 2050, and they're actually calling this the Fit for 55 package. In order to bolster this, the EU has to come up with new border taxes on CO2, and these would aim to prevent countries from relocating their industries to countries that are less strict on climate policies. As stated by leading environmental group spokespersons Hawk Ward, quote, our starting point is the flow of goods going in and out of a country. Everything you import and export has a carbon footprint, and that provides opportunities to exert influence. Now, of course, these new policies tend to leave out some overlooked elements, like being encouraging of lower economic standing countries. Of course, environmentalism is, to some extent, also a classist struggle. So let's take a look at the new key pieces of legislation that came to be in 
April. The CO2 border tax is called the Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism, or CBAM for short. So CBAM is a landmark EU tool that puts a tax on carbon and incentivizes countries where emissions laws are less ambitious to think about their fossil fuel usage. According to policymakers, the EU's carbon border adjustment mechanism is their landmark tool to put a fair price on the carbon emitted during the production of carbon-intensive goods that are entering the EU and to encourage cleaner industrial production in non-EU countries. This CBAM will only be a reporting tool until 2025, where it will then begin to be phased in to promote trade with countries that support phasing out fossil fuels. So the phase in of CBAM will coincide with the phasing out of the free allowances currently allocated to various titans of industries. These allowances are essentially the amount of carbon emissions that is deemed okay within the framework of an industry, kind of like the acceptable byproduct, if you will. Now, European Parliament members approved the following. Reform the 27 Nations Block Emissions Trading System, Introduce a carbon border adjustment mechanism, that's that CBAM. Create a hardship fund called a social climate fund to help vulnerable households, small businesses, and that's because these two areas are most likely to be affected by the higher fuel prices that will result from these changes. And this is significant because there is a financial toll in climate policy that is difficult to absorb for, quote, the little guy. The reform of the emissions trading system avows that European companies and industries should cut emissions by 62% by 2030 compared to that of 2005 levels and previous rulings had set that number closer to 43 so that is a pretty good increase in the slash of emissions for the first time emissions from shipping or maritime emissions that is will also be included in this ruling a new and separate emissions trading system will be put into place for buildings, road transport, and additional sectors which have been comparably challenging to, quote, decarbonize. Emissions from aviation will also see a gradual overhaul. So free emissions allowances for the aviation sector will soon be phased out. And until December 2030, 20 million allowances will be reserved to incentivize the transition of aircraft, operation, aircraft operators away from fossil fuels. 
all of these changes weren't out of nowhere. They actually come after a landmark decision in December regarding the taxation of foreign companies that want to import products that do not comply with EU standards. So in other words, it is more expensive to do business with countries that don't have the same climate-forward policies in place. Starting in 2026, the EU will also phase out free carbon allowances for its own producers. Now, the goal of this is for a complete phase-out of 2030, like I mentioned earlier. Now, notably, notably, this affects the following seven industries, many of which we have already talked about in past episodes. So, that's iron, steel, cement, aluminum, fertilizers, electricity, and hydrogen. All of this feels like many small wins as monitoring and policing is now starting to weave itself into the economic fabric of global leaders. Now this is highly important as we have often seen in our episodes that greed is a vector for blind environmental exploitation with often very grave consequences. Perhaps using economic sanctions is a key to serving our dependency to fossil fuels. It seems that the language of money is universally understood, and this also feels like a win. Speaking of wins, our next topic is about an indigenous woman being awarded the 2023 Goldman Environmental Prize. So the Goldman Environmental Prize is awarded each year to grassroots environmental champions from around the world. In April, it was announced that Alessandra Korab Monduruku is one of this year's winners. Munduruku received the accolade for her work organizing and mobilizing people against a British mining company called Anglo-American. This Anglo-American is actually one of the largest mining companies in the world. This mining company was seeking out swaths of land in Brazil's Amazon rainforest, which is an ecosystem that is scientifically touted as a significant global carbon sink. In order to mine their desired areas, companies like Anglo-American need to execute large clear-cutting operations, which decimate habitat for wildlife and disrupt an intricate ecosystem. It turns out Brazil is one of the five largest mining producers in the world. Recently, under the ill-famed Bolsonaro regime, Brazil passed bills favoring and facilitating the development of mining in the Amazon, often without the consent of local communities. An example of one such area is the Sare Mubu Indigenous Territory located in northern Brazil. This particular area contains 
439,000 acres of Amazon rainforest along the Tapajos River, and it's home to many indigenous communities. One main reason Brazil went after this area is because this land is not formally demarcated by the Brazilian government, and not being recognized puts the region and the communities that live there at risk. Now it happens that the area is populated by the Mundurucu people, and Anglo-American aggressively filed 13 copper mining search applications in the region in 2020. And they did so in indigenous territory without regard to the principle of free, prior, and informed consent of those local indigenous population. Alessandra emerged as a leader in 2018 when she began to study law to better protect the Munduruku indigenous group of Sare Mubu, of whom she is a member. Before this, she was, and still is, the president of the Mariri Indigenous Association, which aims to support communities along the Tapajos River. Alessandra was also a teacher before all of this, and this led her to become involved in the fight against deforestation, hydroelectric development, and the contamination of the Tapajos River. As a woman, she battled resistance as she rose up the ranks in a growing local environmental movement. Fortunately for her, her persistence paid off, and she soon became the first woman to hold the position of coordinator of the Pariri Indigenous Association. Now, of course, as I stated earlier, Alessandra began to study law in 2018 to better protect her community. This new gained knowledge would allow her to better protect and represent her community in the face of aggressive and, it turns out, often illegal mining, drilling, and logging operations in the region. Now, upon learning about Anglo-Americans' multiple bids to essentially desecrate the land she called home, Alessandra spearheaded an inclusive campaign to organize. This would come by way of developing campaign strategies and fundraising efforts. Her methods were inclusive, relying on input from local elders traditional chiefs and healers, and an important facet of organization was the constant monitoring and demarcation of the Munduruku territory, which required organized treks through the Amazon rainforest. Now, these treks persisted of patrols of the territories, measuring levels of deforestation, and this took a lot of commitment due to it being grueling and very remote work. With Alessandra's tireless help, an official declaration was crafted in a December 2020 assembly. Now, this assembly consisted of 45 chiefs 
and 200 participants. The declaration was against further mining and deforestation in Brazil's Amazon rainforest. And within it, Alessandra called on Anglo-Americans' withdrawal of permits. Of course, disingenuously, Anglo-American, quote, disputed the number of approved applications, claiming to have no exploratory permits in indigenous territories, but not ruling out future mining activities on those lands. In other words, they're saying, we never did that, but also we may want to do that in the future. Of course, not settling for that paltry response, Alessandra pushed for clarification and proof of withdrawal. Now, her tactics included a media campaign, which filmed statements by villagers, partnerships with Greenpeace and Amazon Watch, which are both NGOs, and they also drew additional attention, and then finally, she was the spokesperson at conferences, international forums, and on social media. Finally, in May of 2021, Anglo-American formally announced its commitment to withdraw 27 approved mineral research permits in indigenous territories in the Amazon, including 13 copper mining research permits located within the rainforests of the Sare Mubu. The company officially informed the Brazilian government of the withdrawal, citing concerns raised by organizations and indigenous communities. The success of this grassroots operation is very significant. It signifies accountability in the public sector for the devastation caused by destructive industries in Brazil during a period of intense resource extraction being pushed in the Amazon. Alessandra won this prize for her truly tireless efforts to defend her community and territory against industries. This is another well-deserved win. Now for our last topic we will be talking about something a little bit different. It's not necessarily an environmental thing, but it is important and it does have a lot of the same elements that we like to discuss in our topics. This topic is the extinct lion being spotted for the first time in 20 years in Chad. This is a herald of positivity, a symbol of hope, but mostly, but mostly a direct example of how regulating destructive practices permits ecosystems to bounce back. So we're trying to round out April with some feel-good stories. Because although things may look quite dire through the lens of our seemingly chronic failures, there are still bits of good and glimmers of hope happening worldwide. 
On April 24th, researchers at the Sina Aura National Park in the African country of Chad jumped for joy as the image of a gorgeous female lion graced their nighttime wildlife camera screens. And just for reference, this national park is located near the border with Cameroon. Anyways, looking very healthy, the young lioness was a symbol of hope for the future. The local lion population had previously been extinct from that area for the last 20 years, or so it was believed. Researchers tout the sighting as an early sign that the lion population may be inching towards restoration. Worldwide, lions are classified as vulnerable on the International Union for Conservation of Nature's Red List. And this is due to there being a decreasing worldwide population of 23,000 to 39,000 mature individuals today. These lions, the West African lions, are particularly vulnerable with around about a thousand of them purported to be left in the wild. Now, they're classified as technically extinct in Santa Aura, and this was caused by intense targeted poaching around 2012 in the region, and this ended up decimating the West African lion population by about 66%. Fortunately, recent government commitments on behalf of Chad and Cameroon aimed at conservation have had a positive effect. So this meant better protection in national parks and wildlife populations starting to recover. About the recent lioness sighting, Dr. Luke Hunter of the Wildlife Conservation Society Big Cat Fund says, quote, this is hugely encouraging because prime females are the foundation of any lion population, and they are not big wanderers. They inhabit areas that have prey and are safe to raise their cubs in, and I am sure she is not alone. Now all of this could also be a sign that the neighboring park in Cameroon is also harboring a recovering lion population. Now Cameroon's park, Baba Njida National Park, combined with Sina Aura, comprises roughly 1.6 million acres. And in a statement, WCS claims that Baba Njira, quote, supports lions which are now increasing and appear to be recolonizing parts of their former range including Sina Aura. This story was great to throw in because it's also an example of how government regulation and effective policy can provide the framework for not only environmental restoration and protection, but also wildlife restoration and protections. So this week's current events episode is a bit more positive than the past few. It's important to know that even though we can be vectors for positive change as individuals 
ultimately, it is systematic changes that will be the most impactful when it comes to regaining a semblance of environmental balance on our planet. Although there are many more chronic failures that we will be talking about, shining light on our sporadic triumphs is much needed sometimes. I hope you enjoyed today's current events episode. The research for today's episode was done by Chloe Kibbe. I'd like to remind you that we have an Instagram for the podcast and we do post photos on that Instagram account that correlate with our episodes. Our Instagram is at the chronic failure podcast and we do have an email address if you need to send anything to us and we encourage that you do if you have questions or comments that is info at chronic and finally we would greatly appreciate it if you would give us a like and follow and potentially leave a review on whatever podcasting platform you use to listen to this podcast. We would greatly appreciate it because it will help get our name out into the vast regions of the internet, and it'll help us ultimately grow and continue to do what we love, which is bringing to light environmental woes, and also sometimes environmental wins. In next week's episode, we will be traveling to the Middle East, specifically Kuwait. When Iraqi troops withdrew from Kuwait at the end of the Persian Gulf War in early 1991, They set fire to more than 600 oil wells and pools of spilled oil in Kuwait, a parting shot that exacted a significant economic toll on the country's lucrative petroleum industry. Connecticut-sized Kuwait contains about 9% of the world's total proven oil reserves, and petroleum revenues account for 95% of its export earnings. Ignition of the oil well fires also created a serious threat to environmental and human health in the Persian Gulf region. The Kuwait oil fires burned for more than eight months, consuming an estimated five to six million barrels of crude oil and 70 to 100 million cubic meters of natural gas per day. These smoke plumes from the burning gas and oil initially stretched for 800 miles, and a staggering 11 million barrels of crude oil poured into the Persian Gulf, creating a slick 9 miles long. I hope you'll join me again next week for our episode on the Kuwaiti oil fires. Until then, have a good one.